All right, as the kids continue to head out, if you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. We're going through a process of studying the book of Acts one chapter at a time. And so if you have your Bible available this morning, I'd love for you to open up to that. If you have a smartphone or a tablet or some other device that has access to God's Word, open that up and and let's be able to, uh, to read God's Word together. Remember, we're trying to read Acts one chapter at a time as a church. And so we're reading Acts chapter 7 in anticipation for this Sunday, which means that before you come back next Sunday, I would love that you're able to read Acts chapter 8. No surprise uh, about what passage we're going to study. We're just going through the practice of reading God's Word together as a church. And it's so good to hear back from you about the way that you're being faithful to follow along week after week, studying God's Word, then going back and looking at it again after that Sunday, continuing to put God's Word into our lives. And so this is one way we can do that together. The other way that we can do that is through the memory verse that we're practicing as a church. I know it feels like a little kid thing to practice memory verses as a church, but big kids need that even more than little kids. Little kids, you say something and they remember it, Big kids, you say stuff and we forget it. And so we have to practice this. If you would, take your your bulletin out, your worship guide, and if you turn it over to the back, at the top should be the memory verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we're going to practice saying that together this morning. It's the starts out, and if you're like me, the hardest part is trying to get yourself started. If you can get the first few words, sometimes it starts to flow after that. And so we're going to start with, you will receive power, and then we're just going to read it together a couple of times together. Oh, and if you need to cheat, apparently it showed up mysteriously on the screen. So uh, I'll let you cheat if you need to. So it's, it's back there. All right, here we go. We're going to say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, very good. So if you're super spiritual, you closed your eyes or you looked at the floor, you know, during that time to make sure you really were saying it from from memory. But we do want to continue to practice this verse. All right, let's do it one more time together out loud. One, two, three. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, very good. One of the things that we need to remember about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is it's not just a popular verse to memorize, it's not just an important verse to memorize. This verse becomes an outline for the entire book how the gospel starts to take root, the church starts to grow in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and then we're going to see as we read through the book how it follows from in Jerusalem, and then it moves into Judea and Samaria, and then it ends up going to the ends of the earth. And so what what Luke has given us here in Acts 1-8 becomes the outline for the way that this entire book unfolds. Here's one of the ways it becomes very clear. Look at chapter 6. I know I didn't tell you what chapter to turn to earlier. I think I forgot. We're ultimately going to look mostly at chapter 7 this morning. But, but open to Acts chapter 6 
which might require you to scroll up on your phone or, or turn back a page. And look at verse 7. This is from the end of the, of the time last week. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem, key phrase, in Jerusalem, increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I know that might seem like a small statement and a large number of priests, but here's what was happening at that time. Most of the priests, a majority of the priests, and there were a lot of them, the high priests, the the popular guys, they would live in Jerusalem. But most of the priests lived outside of Jerusalem, in Judea. And so they would live in the countryside, and whenever it was their turn to help with the sacrifices or to be a part of the temple, then they would travel into Jerusalem. And so when it says that many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith and they were becoming followers of Jesus, you know what it means? It means the in Judea part of Acts 1.8 is starting to happen. It's all been happening in Jerusalem. It even says here the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. But you also have these priests who are living out in the countryside countryside in Judea and they're coming to faith. And so Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is coming true as we read verses like verse 7. And then we get into the passage for today. Look down in verse 8. Now Stephen. Stephen was one of the seven who was chosen back up in verse 5. But it says in verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose. Now if you've been with us a few weeks, that's not surprising. God's spirit moves, opposition comes. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Guess where those places are? Not in Jerusalem. It's outside. Who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now I know you haven't been keeping track, but in Acts, this is the third time that followers of Jesus come before the Sanhedrin. This phrase that's happening right here in this verse, this is the third time that it's happened in Acts. And in this case, the third time is not the charm. The third time is, at first they got a warning. The second time they got flogged. The third time, spoiler alert, but Stephen is going to be killed for for his faith. And so every time it gets worse when they appear before the Sanhedrin. Verse, uh, Verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. And then for about 50 more verses, 
Stephen unpacks the story of the Old Testament. And we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But skip ahead a few pages, scrolling quickly down your phone, to verse 51. So after Stephen has unpacked the story of the Old Testament, and we're going to focus in on what those themes are, in verse 51, he has this very kind thing to say about the people. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Spoiler alert number two, Saul is a pretty important character in the book of Acts. He'll come back up again. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. Now, this is a huge passage to get our arms around. There's what happens at the beginning. There's Stephen's speech in the middle, which is actually the longest speech that we'll find in the book of Acts. And then there's his martyrdom, his killing that happens at the end of chapter 7. And you can see how Luke, who is writing this this book, purposefully insults, insults, not insults, inserts Saul's name Because Saul is going to become a key figure as we move further into the book of Acts. So how do we deal with a passage like this? The way that we're going to try to do it this morning is by just asking the question we've been asking all along. What does it look like when God's spirit moves? What does it look like when God begins to build a church? When God begins to move in a church? What does it look like? And I think that Stephen's story gives us a good way to approach that. Here at First Baptist, if you ask us, what what is your mission? We would say that our mission is that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. So we exist so that the words that we say and the lives that we live point people to Jesus. We proclaim and display Jesus. And then we have three words that we tack onto that. We do that supremely. Jesus is greater than all else. We do that fully. Jesus impacts all of our life, and we do that widely. If this is really true about Jesus, everybody needs to know about it. So we exist to proclaim and display Jesus supremely, fully, and widely. And then on your notes, you'll see in bold face, we're going to kind of follow that outline. That when God's Spirit moves, people will begin to worship Him supremely. God will be the greatest, most important, most central thing not theme, but person in their life. And we see that happening in Stephen's life. Look back, I know this is going to require some turning, but look back in chapter 6 again. So scroll or turn back and look in chapter 6, verse 8. We know 
that Stephen has already experienced God's power in his life. It says in verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Then look down in verse 2 of chapter 7. Stephen was also focused on God's glory. He says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Then if you flip over to the end of Stephen's speech, and you look what happens in verse 55, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and what did he see? He saw the glory of God. And so what we know about Stephen's experience, what we know about Stephen's life, is that the very foundation of his life is that he had experienced God's power. And he had experienced God's glory. And that became the defining experience for Stephen. He wasn't doing this. He wasn't giving this speech because he wanted to be proven right. He wasn't living this type of life because he wanted people to like him or he needed to fulfill his religious duty. Stephen's life was driven by the fact that he had experienced God's power in his life. And here's the reality. If we attempt Christianity or we attempt involvement in church and we find it boring or irrelevant or meaningless or just something that those religious people do, it's probably because we've never truly experienced God's power in our life. And we've never truly encountered God's glory. Because if you attempt a religion, or you attempt to be a part of a church, but you're doing it just from a human perspective, and you've never truly experienced God's power in your life, you're going to grow tired of it quickly. And it's going to be boring. It's going to be irrelevant, because from the very beginning, we've missed the point. And the point is that our lives exist. This church exists not because of us, but because of God. Because of his glory and his power and his greatness. It depends on the copy of the Bible you have, the translation. But sometimes the book of Acts, at the very beginning in chapter 1, has the title Acts of the Apostles. Especially maybe if you have a King James Version or you have a New King James Version Bible. At the very beginning, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. And so it tells us about men like Stephen and Peter and Paul. The only problem with that title is that it puts the focus where? On the apostles. And the apostles, with the lives that they lived, their lives were never focused on themselves. Their lives were focused where? On God, on his power, on his glory. And so when we think about these apostles and what they lived for, they would probably be embarrassed that the book was called the Acts of the Apostles. They would want it to be called the Acts of God through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that this is what God is doing. And so God calls us as believers, God calls us as a church to live a God-centered, Godward life. If you want to know more about what that looks like, we're going to unpack that a little bit more at 6 o'clock tonight when we gather together for an evening service of prayer and Bible study. We're going to think about what does it mean to live in a way that God is the very center, that God is supreme and everything that I do. And so when Stephen worships God supremely, the second point on your notes is that he speaks his message and he follows the Savior fully. And here's the reality. When we speak God's message that he's given us, when we speak that message, 
there is going to be opposition, and that message is going to be twisted. What we say is going to be taken and turned into something else. The first thing we see about Stephen's message here is that Stephen knows God's word. What happens down in verse 3 when he says, Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Stephen is quoting from what we call the Old Testament. It was just Stephen's Bible because the New Testament didn't exist at this point. This is what Stephen knew as scripture. And so he is quoting. And then he says in verse 4, So he left the land of the Chaldeans, talking about Abraham, and he settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. And so from this point on in chapter 7, Stephen starts to pick up speed and he starts to tell the story of the Old Testament. Here's my question for you. If given the opportunity, could you tell the story of Scripture in a two to three minute summary that ties the pieces together? Now, if I was to ask you that question about some movie series or some TV series or some book series and say, could you tell me what this is about? Some of you know how this works. You got through college on things like Cliff Notes or running to class and you ask your friend, hey, what was that book about? And in two to three minutes on the way to class, your friend tells you what that book is about. But the problem is when it comes to scripture and we start to do this, we find out that it's a little bit easier said than done. Because when you start to try to explain to someone, well, I know there was a guy, Noah, and he was important, And then there was a guy, Jonah. And then you realize that all your Old Testament stories are about deadly water events. And you think, this isn't a good sign based on, you know, where I live. And so there was Noah, and there was Jonah, and there was this guy named David. And and you realize it's hard sometimes to tell the story of the Old Testament in a way that is not disjointed Bible stories, but is one big story of this is what God has been doing in the world. But we find out that that's exactly what Stephen is doing here. And what you will find throughout history, and what you will find throughout the world, is that believers who are undergoing persecution, believers who are on trial for their faith, are those who are most likely to place God's word at the center of their experience. On your notes, down a little bit further, I put some resources that you can look at for knowing more about the persecuted church, learning about brothers and sisters around the world who are on trial for their faith. There's one book on there, and I know that the title of the book seems a little strange, that the title would be called The Insanity of God. But what this book does is it follows the path of a man who went through some very difficult experiences in his own faith, And he found himself doubting a little bit, doubting what it meant for God to be present when life is hard. And so he goes around the world and he visits believers who have been undergoing persecution. And one of the stories that he tells in that book is how he traveled to Russia. And he began to talk to people who were believers under the old USSR. And they begin to tell him the story of how back in the 1950s, there were all of these house churches around Russia. 
But the problem was, in order for them to stay safe, they couldn't tell very many people about their faith. And so these teenagers, these kids, were growing up in these house churches, but that was all they knew of the Christian faith. They had never encountered other believers. And so these pastors decided, we have to get these kids together. We have to get these teenagers together. And so they called a conference. Now, you did not call Christian conferences in 1950 Soviet Union situations. And sure enough, the pastors who called this conference were thrown into prison for several decades because they brought these teenage believers together. But one of the things they did when they brought these teenage believers together is they asked them to try to recreate from memory as much of the New Testament as possible. And they found out when they got these kids together that they were able to recreate almost the entire first four books of the New Testament from memory because they had grown up in situations where their faith was on the line, where the God's word was their very food, that this was what they had that they were holding their life on. This man went back in the 1990s, early 2000s, and revisited this area. Two generations later, a decade into freedom for these people, and they tried to do the same thing with the teenagers and kids, and you know what they found out? They couldn't do it. Because they were no longer living under this persecution. They were no longer living in a situation where God's word had to be at the center, and so they weren't able, they weren't dependent on God's word the way that they had been when they were under persecution in the 50s. What we find in Stephen's story and what we find around the world today is that when believers are under persecution, when believers are under fire for their faith, they find that they have to have God's word at the center. But when we can just kind of live our faith however we want to, then we don't need God's word at the center, or so it seems. And so we treat God's word very passively. If there's one thing that you can do this afternoon or one thing that you can do this week and in the coming weeks is get yourself in a situation where you try to tell God's word from beginning to end. Where you try to say, what would it look like for me to give a summary of scripture to someone in a two to three minute time frame? And do I really know God's word and can I live it out the way that Stephen does? But Stephen doesn't just know God's word. Stephen is acting on God's word. Look at the end of chapter seven. We've already read this. It's one thing to know God's word, it's another to act on it. He says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So you know the word, but you're not acting on it. Stephen's going to do the very opposite. He's going to teach the word, and he's going to act on it. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said... I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
Now, when these men start to move against Stephen and say, we are going to kill you, we are going to kill you for your faith, we're going to kill you for what you said about who God is, notice that Stephen, in that moment, doesn't panic and say, oh, no, I didn't really mean that. He stands by his word. And we find out in those moments of conflict, in those moments of opposition, do we really stand by God's word, or is it something we just talk about, and then when opposition comes, we say, oh, no, we didn't really mean that. We need those times of opposition to our faith. We need those times of persecution where we have to decide, do I really believe this, or did I just believe this when times were easy? And the other thing that we need to be aware of about Stephen's situation here is that the reason Stephen got himself in this position to begin with is because they were bringing false witnesses against him. They were twisting what he said and making it sound like something different. They were saying, Stephen is speaking against the law of Moses. Stephen is speaking against the temple, which he may have been doing something like that, but he wasn't doing it to the extent that they they said he was. And so they bring up these false charges against him. They twist what he said. Here's warning number one, and sometimes Christians can be so bad about this. Be careful about telling someone of another faith what they believe just because you know a little bit about their faith. Sometimes we can be the very worst about twisting someone else's message. I'm not saying that the messages of the other faiths are true. What I'm saying is let's hear from other people what they really believe and not tell other people what they believe. Because sometimes, just like people can twist our message and say, make it say something entirely different, sometimes we can do the same about people of other faiths. We want to hear people on their ground. Let them say, this is what I believe, and then you can respond with, this is what I believe, based on the Bible. So be careful about twisting the message that other people give just to your own benefit. The second question we have to ask is, how is the Bible twisted? How do people take things and make it say something different. This is exactly what happens in Genesis 3 when Satan comes on the scene, and he takes what God has said, but he just takes part of it, and then he twists it. I gave you a couple of ideas on your notes there. Anytime someone adds to the Bible, so they say it's the Bible plus something else, anytime someone subtracts from Jesus, they say Jesus was not really God, or Jesus was not fully man. He was something less. Anytime they add to the Bible, anytime they subtract from Jesus, anytime they multiply the requirements for salvation, in order to be saved, you have to do this, this, and this. God's word is being twisted. Or anytime someone tries to divide the body of Christ, our church is the only church. Or Our church is the only place that God's spirit really moves. Or don't have anything to do with those Christians. They don't really know what they're talking about. Anytime someone adds to the Bible, subtracts from Jesus, multiplies the requirements for salvation, or divides the body of Christ, those are all math things. Did you see what I did there? All right. They're all math things. Add, subtract, multiply, divide. Anytime that happens know that God's word is being twisted. And so these are things that we can be aware of. I like math. I know I like grammar, so I like grammar and math, which puts me in about like the 0.5% of all people in the world. But uh, yay for us. Um, 
This is a really helpful way to remember, to think about what it means for God's word uh, to be twisted. All right, let's move to the last point. So Stephen worshiped God supremely. He spoke his message and followed his Savior. And then the third thing is that he was part of the mission of God moving widely. And I know that this gets caught up in Stephen's speech, and it's easy to miss. But one of the main themes of Stephen's speech is that God works everywhere, not just in Jerusalem. Go back to the beginning of chapter 7. I want to point out a couple of things that are easy to overlook. Hopefully you've already read chapter 7 before you came, but if you're our guest this morning, you haven't read chapter 7, read it this afternoon, read it this week. Pay attention to this reality. Stephen puts an emphasis on God working outside Jerusalem. Verse 2. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is not Jerusalem. It's the area around Jerusalem. It's outside of that area. So God appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Go down to verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and by the patriarchs they mean Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers sold them into slavery, which may be something you've considered doing with your brothers, but they really did it. They sold him as a slave, and where did he go? To Egypt. What's the next phrase? God was with him and rescued him. So what we find out is that God is active in Mesopotamia. God is active in Egypt And so God is active in areas that are not just in Jerusalem. You get down to verse 48. He talks about the temple being built. How Solomon was the one who built this temple that David had wanted to build. And verse 48, guess what? The Most High, speaking of God, does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So God does not just work in Jerusalem. He works in Mesopotamia. God does not just work in Jerusalem. He works in Egypt. God does not just work in this religious building called the temple. He works in all places because he's the creator of all places. And what we have to remember about our faith in Jesus, what we have to remember about what's happening in Acts, is that God does not just work in one place. His message, his gospel, his kingdom is spreading to all people and to all places. But even today, even today, if we're not careful, we find certain places that we think God should work, and then we have other places that we really don't think God should work. We think God works in clean places, safe places, comfortable places, translated our places, but God would never work over there, would he? He would never work in that place. He could never work in that person's house. He could never work in that community. He could never work in that country. And we find ourselves doing the same thing that was happening here. We have certain places that we think God works best, And then we have other places that we think there's no way that God would ever work there. And the story of Stephen here, and the story of the book of Acts, is that God is the creator of all places, and so he will work in all places. 
which means that God's people should be a people on the move, always moving into new places, always finding new places where the light has not shone and saying, we will chase darkness. We will go to those places so that they will know about the good news of Jesus. I told you last week about my bad interaction with the wood chipper because of the large amounts of vegetation that grow up in our yard. This week, I found out that in our yard, we have these little vine creatures that grow out. And if you, you start to pull the vine up, do you know where the root is located? Not underneath that plant. I can guarantee you. Because you start to pull the vine, and the vine starts to go with you. And the vine goes, and it goes, and it goes. And you find out that not just that one vine is connected to the root in the ground, but there are like 10 or 12. And so you kill it in one place, and what happens? It shows up in another place. It's like growing okra. You can never, ever get rid of okra. Or, or growing bamboo. Someone who lived in our little plot of land before we got there must have loved panda bears. Because there is bamboo everywhere. And you start to cut down bamboo, and bamboo doesn't care. Bamboo just comes right back up. And then bamboo starts to spread to new areas. And so your whole yard is taken over by this vegetation. The reality of the way that the gospel spreads and acts, the way that God's kingdom works in the whole world, is that it's never confined to just one place. Which means we always have to be so careful. And I know we grew up using this language, and so it's almost impossible to break. But we have to be so careful about calling a building like this God's house. Because what this scripture has shown is that God's house is in all places. That God works in all places. We are thankful for a building like this. We are thankful for the people who gave and the people who built and the people who made this possible. But we can never say that this is truly God's house because God is at work in so many different places. And so we as his people have to be prepared to follow him into all of those places. And you might be saying, yeah, but Owen, I don't like going to new places. You might be like our five-year-old, our little boy who's in the middle. We have a seven-year-old girl, five-year-old boy, two-year-old little girl. Our five-year-old, he's already the old man on the porch swing who doesn't want to go anywhere. We take him somewhere. Two hours later, he says, can we go home? I want to go home. He loves home. I'm scared to take him to Disney because we'd spend all this money and we would get there and he'd say, can we go home? Like, he just wants to be at his house. And you might say, I love being at my house. I love where I live. I don't want to go other places. But remember, the gospel spreads other places in a lot of different ways. It does it here. There are places here that the gospel needs to take root. There are places near to here that the gospel needs to take root. There are places far away that the gospel needs to take root. We are a part of a movement in which the gospel is moving to all places because God is the one who has created all people in all places. And so we will commit as a church to being part of that. So that's Stephen's story. He worshiped God supremely. He had experienced God's greatness in his life. He knew the message and he followed his Savior. And he was a part of this message going to all people. Ask yourself those three questions. With my life, do I truly worship God above all else? Is God just something I do on Sunday morning? 
Is God just something my family has always done? Or do I truly worship him as supreme above all else? If I do worship him like that, am I following him fully? Am I knowing his message? Be a part of a Sunday school class. Be a part of a small group Bible study. Read Acts 8 next week before you come back. Memorize Acts 1-8. Live out your faith this week. And if you're doing that, and it really is that important, then it's a message that needs to be known by all people. So what are you doing? What am I doing? What are we doing as a church to make sure that the gospel is spreading to all people? Even if we all have to dress up in red t-shirts and go to other places so that the gospel is made known to people, let's do that. Let's be active with our faith. Worship him supremely, follow him fully, and then be on mission wherever he takes us. Let's pray together.